Hello and welcome to NDA, the show where I guess I argue with creators about the creator economy. Hello and welcome to NDA. My name is Dave Wiskus. This is the show where I talk to people in the creator economy about the creator economy and try desperately to find a term that could replace creator economy. Today, I'm joined by Jordan Harrod. How you doing, Jordan? Not bad. How about you? I'm having a lovely time. <laughs> I'm, I feel like I'm still recovering, honestly, from last week. Like I'm, I am so, I don't know, I feel like I get hit by a truck. Yeah, no, I think one of the the big reasons why I'm happy this week is coming to an end is so that I can sleep through the three-day weekend and hopefully be <laughs> back on my feet on Tuesday because, boy, was last week uh, an adventure. It was something. It was something. For the people listening, we're both at an event, which I won't name because we might share thoughts about that event. Some of those thoughts might be colored by uh, the fact that we're tired and, you know, we, we don't want don't to go too far down a path. We're not trying to throw anybody under the bus. We were there. And it was interesting. You had, a, I think, a slightly different experience than I did. Well, I think that the mindset that I went into that event was very much like I'm going to go on this panel and I'm going to spend the rest of the time working. And I think that in, in some ways that helped because if I'd gone into it trying to get more out of it, I think I would have been more disappointed. But in other ways, it made things a little bit more frustrating because being there while trying to do something else was a bit of a kind of clash of experiences. And the something else was PhD work. So it's not like I was working on other content while I was there. I approached it similarly. I, I kind of felt like I'm going to go do this and I'm going to see friends and I'm going to spend some time with people that I know and I'm going to meet a few new people. And that's going to be fine. This is a work trip where I get to spend time with clients and friends, and it's going to be fine as long as I get to do that. And I got to do that. I don't have complaints per se. I guess I have notes. Yes, I, I also had notes leaving it. I guess the overarching thing for me when it came to that event was that I realized fairly quickly that it just wasn't for me. Like I was not the target audience for that. And I think that's where a lot of the friction came from when it came to my experience. So our notes also might be different on that front because we're probably coming from slightly different perspectives. Oh, yeah, for sure. For me, it was uh, the, the realization along the way that the event itself was still towards the top of a funnel. Yeah. And for, for everyone there, everyone there had a course to sell or a book to sell. It was really thick with gurus and people who, who wanted to sell you coaching or whatever. And uh, th that stuff kind of turns me off in general. But I was really, I guess not surprised, but disheartened to hear some of the, I shouldn't say some of the feedback. There was a big conversation uh, back-channeled. A lot of the, the women who attended had a very different experience than the experience that I had. Yeah, I guess I was less surprised by the marketing funnel of it all and a lot more surprised by both the lack of diversity, but also in my opinion, like not very good handling of that lack of diversity. And I think at least within the the conference app, their organizers did seem somewhat receptive to feedback. So fingers crossed next year, the event will be more diverse, more inclusive, uh, a better experience for the 20 women who were there out of 1500 people. But I think it was hard to go to an event that I already did not have high standards for and still be disappointed. It's really rough. I've, I come from the tech industry and I've spent, I don't know, it, it felt like 10, 15 years of my life hearing about and going to these tech conferences where one person or another said a thing that was completely inappropriate and either had to apologize for it or it turned into some big um, tech blog kerfuffle. It was like a Python convention or something where the big story was that some of the guys were sitting behind this. This woman reported that the guys behind her in the audience were making jokes about dongles. And she felt really uncomfortable and that turned into a big conversation. And I kind of felt like after two or three of those, like, OK, we've all got the message, right? Right. We've all got we all know that we're not. Split. Oh, no, we're still doing it. Oh, OK, cool. Yep. It's so strange to this this many years later, different industry like, oh, you're just repeating the same exact mistakes. 
Yeah, I mean, this is still an issue over in like machine learning world where I spend the other half of my time. We have an annual conference that is kind of the major event that everyone goes to called Neural Information Processing Systems. And you can see for yourself <laughs> that what that fun. acronym stands for, what it ends up being. Wait, wait, wait. Say it again. Say it again. Neural Information Processing Systems, formerly known as NIPS. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. It's now called NeurIPS. They rebranded, but it oh, came better. after a, a very long push <laughs> from the women who were attending the conference and didn't love the fact that all of the like t-shirts and coffee mugs that you get at the conference were like sex jokes about nipples. Yeah, it reminds me of our friends. I'm not throwing them under the bus necessarily, but the Vsauce guys, they had a channel called Do Online Now Guys. The acronym was DONG. Ah. I get it, but you know, maybe there's a better way to do it. I think it's DING now. I think they call it DING. <laughs> I guess that's better. Yeah. Do you, when you think of these conferences, when you go to these things, do you go in with like the guard up of that's just going to happen? I think I live most of my life with that guard up. So yes. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. As a black woman who's also queer and neurodivergent, like any situation I'm going into requires some amount of like code switching, masking, you know, testing the room to see kind of where things are before deciding what persona I would like to play that day in order to reach whatever my goal is for that event. And so I think that in academia, where I spend half my time, you still definitely run into those issues. In content world, you also still run into those issues. I would say less so for some of the events that I go to. I was at a different YouTube event a couple of weeks ago that I thought was actually pretty good on the inclusion side where I felt pretty comfortable and wasn't super worried. But that's more so my lived experience and something that I think about specifically for events like the one that we went to last week. Do you find that the different things you go to for different parts of your life, the your, your life is fairly segmented. You've got your school life. You've got, like, I think the the, the broader machine learning life, which is sort of related. And you've got the, the YouTube content producer life, which is kind of related. But these these things, at some point, there there's, I wouldn't say hard lines necessarily between them. Maybe there are. But do you find that those different parts of your life, those different facets of how you spend your time, that one group or another is much better or much worse about this kind of thing? Who's the biggest asshole? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> I think it really depends on which even like subgroup of the community I happen to be in. Because ML world, if I'm going to, for example, I'm part of a group called Black and AI. So if I'm going to a Black and AI event, like I'm not super worried about how that's going to go. But if I'm going to like a larger conference, then I might be a little bit more on guard. So I think it really does depend on the situation that I'm in across all three plus facets of my life. And I wouldn't say that any one of them is better than the other two. Some of them are doing well in some areas. All of them could put in some work in others. If you were to start your own event, what is the, the first thing that you would do differently? Because there was this back channel conversation about like, hey, let's do our own thing. And it called this market research as much as it's a conversation. But like, I've been involved in running events. Some pretty amazing stuff. Not necessarily amazing because I was involved, but I, I, I was part of the, the organizing group for an event called UL, U-L-L, the, uh, the Gaelic word for Apple. It was an, an Apple developer, Apple community conference run by some folks in Ireland, hence the, the Gaelic. And it was truly an amazing experience. It's hard to even call it a conference. It didn't feel like a conference. It was just a bunch of people getting together and awesome shit happened. When I think about what I would want to do differently, I'm thinking very experientially in terms of, well, instead of having different tracks or just five different rooms where there's different people talking about different shit, how about we make sure everyone has the same experience? How about we put everybody in one room? How about we go smaller instead of broader? How about we focus more on what is it like to be in that room and what are the interactions we have from one session to the next? How do we make it one big shared experience over a couple of days? Your perspective and some of the stories that I heard from last week might shine some light on, I wouldn't, I don't say a blind spot. I'm aware of it. It's just because of who I am, I don't think about it in the same way. What are the other things that could be done in building an event that that might cover some of those those things that like, look, I'm a straight white dude. There's just some stuff that I'm not going to think about in the same way. If me or someone like me is putting together an event, what should we be thinking about? What should we do? What should, who, should, who should we hire? 
What are the solutions for this? I'm not asking you to solve it, but like if, if you're in charge, what's your first step? I mean, I think the first step is to just make sure that you're very clear on your audience and your goals for the event. So if the goal is to have an event that is going to serve as a funnel towards courses, <laughs> you can design an event yeah. like that. And like, if that's the goal that you were going for, then you've succeeded. That's not an event that I would necessarily want to attend, but I also wouldn't be the audience for that. So I think that would also go into, you know, would you be marketing that event to me? Would you be having me, you know, speak at an event like that? Like probably not. <laughs> um, it might not make sense based on the audience that that you're trying to bring in. And when it comes to something that's, you know, more inclusive, that generates more conversation, that allows people to really learn from each other and learn from diverse perspectives. I would say from like a conference format perspective, I think like unconferences are a cool idea just because I feel like they tend to facilitate much more serendipitous connections, conversations that lead to collaborations or ideas that might not have come out in something a little bit more structured. Uh, I went to SciFu a couple of years ago, which is an unconference that Google runs. And it was my first experience in a setting like that. And it was really interesting because people came in and kind of pitched like, well, I am interested in this topic and I can talk about this. And so people naturally kind of created the experience that they wanted to have. But that does really work better in smaller events. Once you have, I would say, more than like 100 people, that gets unwieldy. Okay, I've got an idea. I noticed I don't think the thing last week had a code of conduct. Or at least not that I ever saw. I am not aware of one. It might have been in the app, but I also like never signed speaker agreements or a media release. So yeah, <laughs> here's my idea. An event, whatever it is, with a clear code of conduct that everyone has to not read, but sign, like acknowledge, like you started a job and you like you go through the sexual harassment training stuff or you, you receive a copy of the policy or the employee handbook. You have to sign a thing stating that you received that and you had an opportunity to read it. Why not do that at an event? Have we not seen enough shit that that seems like a reasonable thing to have people do? I suppose I wonder how much that would actually prevent people from violating the code of conduct. Well, this is where the second part of my idea comes in. Okay. Along with signing this and along with purchasing your ticket, you also have to put in a security deposit. <laughs> and if So if, if you, you violate buy... the code of conduct, we take <laughs> yeah. it? Yep. Yep. If you do a uh, if you do a creepy during the conference, then you get sent home and we keep your deposit and we donate it to, you know, whatever organization might be relevant. The Anti-Creeper Foundation. I think it's an interesting idea. I always worry about requiring things like deposits for things like this because not everyone has the money. Yeah, it, it goes back to audience. Like, can the people that you want to come afford a deposit? <laughs> Well, I think some of it, when we look at an event like last week, that was an event that was both designed for people who, well, ostensibly designed for people who are professionals, professional creators or or otherwise industry professionals, and yet seems to have been priced so that it could reach the broadest possible collection of those people. Mm -hmm. So it didn't feel like, I don't know, tickets were like, what, 1500 bucks or something? It, it was, if, I think, 1000 I think that the pricing lended to to the demographics of the audience that ended up coming, because yes. if you were a creator of color, a creator from a marginalized group, chances are you were not paying $1,000 to go to this conference. I think they priced out certain demographics, intentionally or not. Interesting, because I think that for the demographics they captured, it was low enough that a lot of those people could go regardless of the success level of their channels. And it sounds like what, what you're suggesting is that for people outside that demographic, they may not have had the same economic resources for one reason or another, which could contribute to like, for those demographics, you can only afford to come in if you're already doing really well. Yes. And I mean, even price of admission aside, like depending on where you live, like we talk about demographics, we're not just talking about things like race, gender, sexuality, like there is a level of like geographic diversity that you also don't mm -hmm. necessarily see at these types of things. Yeah, it's mostly L.A. people. Yeah, because getting to L.A. is a pain <laughs> if you don't live in L.A. <laughs> right, right. So let's think let's let's tease that out a little bit. If you want an event that can attract higher tier people, yet also be inclusive for marginalized groups who don't live near the event, 
How do you build pricing for that? How do you make it equitable? Yeah, I, I think you you end up having either a stratified pricing system or you have travel grants or something like that. I think actually NeurIPS does this where they offer, you can apply for a travel grant and there's no like, you don't have to demonstrate financial need of some amount. You can just apply and they tend to try to give the grants to people who might not otherwise be represented at the conference. So I think that is one way of doing it. Obviously, there's no perfect answer for this because whoever's deciding who gets a fee waiver versus who doesn't, like all of their biases and whatnot are going to go into this and you run into selection bias issues. But I I do think that that's an interesting, at least, approach to doing something like this. And I also think that it overcomes the obstacles often associated with things like, well, if you come and we'll reimburse you, like that also doesn't, as a grad student, I hate that. As a creator, I also hate that. People may or may not have the money to pay for things out of pocket and then get reimbursed. So reimbursing people, I think, is often also a way of inadvertently gatekeeping. At this scale, it sort of acts like a cash rebate where like, yeah, they'll technically reimburse you as long as you like are the sort of person who remembers to save all the receipts and then has the wherewithal the time and the energy to submit those receipts. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a complicated problem, I think. With um, with with YouTube taking the reins on Educon, it seemed like they were making an effort to do, I don't know, to put some kind of dent in this. YouTube, uh, <laughs> we've, we've sort of been down this path with them. They... I feel like their hearts are in the right place. I, feel like I think their hearts they're... are in the right place for EduCon. Well, the uh, the the what's it with the the YouTube Black Voices program? Mm-hmm. Like that that seems like a thing where their hearts are in the right places. They don't know. I don't. I don't think they have a strong plan. Although I heard it got better. I was talking to. I want to say I was talking to Jabril's. Yeah, I haven't talked to him. Or I think I did briefly talk to him when I was applying for it, but I haven't circled back with him to see to compare notes. Yeah, I, I spoke to him briefly at Educon about this. He was very bullish, it seemed. He was very uh, big on on what they were trying to do, and it seemed like they were making a real effort. And there was like, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. But they, they were actively doing things beyond just here, have some money. Like they were providing access to some resources or like making some connections there above and beyond just writing a check, which when they reached out to you and we had a conversation about this, I think they were just writing a check, or at least that's how it was explained to me. You get the grant, but you also get like workshops and stuff. I don't actually know mm-hmm. how much I can talk about the details, but it's not just a check. So if that was all they got the well, year before, good. then there there has been improvement in this year's cohort. And I would imagine they've been pretty good about taking feedback in my experience when it comes to like Black Voices, but also like things like Educon and, and other initiatives. So I am crossing my fingers that programs like that continue to get better. I also cross my fingers that the process of, getting access to programs like that becomes a little bit more transparent because currently it is very opaque. I think YouTube has a, well, an opacity problem, but I think that kind of goes both ways. I used to look at YouTube as like the man. And over the last few years, getting to know various folks on on various teams, getting to know those people and getting to hear their motivations for the things they're working on You and I know, I think, mostly the same people. Getting to talk to YouTube creator marketing or the discovery team or the comments team or the content ID people, these are not evil jerks who are apt to screw creators over. In fact, many of them are actively looking to have conversations with and befriend creators to better understand the creator experience. And I never would have guessed that three years ago. I never would have thought that these people were genuinely trying to find solutions to platform problems that didn't harm creators and could actively help creators. I still have regular debates with with those folks about how things could or should be done. But the fact that they're even willing to engage in that conversation, I think, means something. Yeah, I definitely think, I don't know, I think I also sit in a bit of an odd space when it comes to this, where having gotten to know and talk to so many YouTube employees working on, you know, things from programs like Black Voices, Educon, to working on stuff like the Discovery Team has been super interesting and enlightening about like the inner workings of YouTube and how decisions get made and how things get changed and how often, you know, things that if you didn't hear behind the scenes conversations, you wouldn't realize aren't, I think, as intentionally malicious as it can come off to, to people who don't talk to 
or who don't have connections within YouTube. I think that I also still end up being, because I straddle groups who are both have the kind of insider knowledge and then also do not have the insider knowledge. I think that often puts me in a slightly uncomfortable place to be justifying decisions that were made to people who do feel like they've been genuinely harmed by YouTube as like the big company. And I don't know, I guess it's something that I'm curious about ways to reconcile that without like having a massive group chat with every single YouTube creator ever who has (laughs) one-on-one access to YouTube employees because like that doesn't make any sense. But I do think that both the platform and the creator experience could be improved mutually by just like more conversations like that. And so I'm happy that I get to have them, but I also definitely wish that more people could. I know that our friend uh, FD Signifier has talked a lot about the ways in which the YouTube algorithm affects marginalized creators, I think it's particularly in the black community. I won't go so far as to say that there is a direct allegation that the algorithm is racist as like a matter of intent. Uh, but I think there's the, definitely a spirit of like this system is broken in some way. I'm not presenting this as a thing that like you need to be a, a particular voice on. But when I hear things like that and then I hear the thought that goes into the design of the algorithm or the things that the platform looks for as markers of success, I feel this cognitive dissonance of like, I agree with both of you. I see the problem, but I don't know how to get either of you to see things the way the other sees it. Yeah, I think so much of that dichotomy is, you know, what we hear from everyone on the YouTube side is like the algorithm is the audience. And I think that that's true. And I feel like that's (laughs) the audience is assholes. Yeah. like (laughs) Sometimes, sometimes the audience is assholes. People's suck and also everyone has their own like internal unconscious biases that Mm. might drive them towards a certain type of content might drive them away from searching for things that you know would surface marginalized creators i think that there's i mean we could like zoom way out in terms of like national broadband and like marginalized Mm. communities not Mm. having internet access so like if there were more black people on the internet would there be more popular black creators because the algorithm would adjust that like oh that's interesting yeah like people get mad about the algorithm and i totally understand that and feel where they're coming from but i also think that i don't know that there's a fix that you can make to the algorithm that doesn't also like require changing like national policy. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I think of it as the platform is a reflection of who we are. And when you load up the homepage and you're seeing tons of late night talk shows, maybe it's because that's what people like you seem to like. And so the platform assumes that because you're like those people, you'd probably like it too. And in 98% of cases, the platform is probably right. That doesn't mean that we don't also end up with Facebook style. Let's just recommend white supremacist content to you all day because the people who look like you would like this stuff and you keep clicking the like button and that seems to be okay. There's still these uh, pocket communities that in the old days, people didn't feel safe to go around saying things like that. But on the internet, you can find a forum where it's totally okay to say those things. And then you discover new things to say and it spirals. And you can keep feeding an algorithm all of the little ways in which you hate other people. Those adorable little robot puppies that just want to make you happy with the good content will keep finding new new hate to show you. Do you think that there's a human solution for this, a technical solution for this, a policy solution for this, or like an AI solution for this? I don't think there's an AI solution for it. Oh, man. Probably the easiest question. Well, it's been a great show. I was really hoping that we'd get there. I'd like to thank our guest, Jordan Thanks for having me. This was great time. Um, Yeah, don't think that there's an easy algorithmic fix, largely because and I think because I have the opportunity to talk to so many people on like the discovery team who work on this kind of stuff on a day to day basis. It's just very hard to, you know, tweak one lever and not have 8 million cascading effects that you didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know that there's an easy way of just going in and reconfiguring a system to not do that. I also think that there's the whole issue of what you're optimizing for. Like, what does satisfaction, what does viewer satisfaction mean in a video? And that's also a really hard metric to hit. So 
I, I definitely have um, developed a lot more sympathy for people who work on the discovery team in the last few years because the the questions that they're trying to answer are like super complicated and not particularly well defined. In terms of a, a policy or like I don't know societal change, I think this this always ends up coming up in my videos where it's like how do we solve algorithmic fairness and it's like educate the masses uh bring stakeholders in to shape decision making but also don't like abuse their time and energy and resources have things like national broadband have reform how we fund education in this country like it's so many of the things that i think would result in an algorithm that people I don't even want to say an algorithm that people prefer because it also just comes down to like personal opinion. Like I have two different YouTube accounts and one of them is for educational content and one of them is for like what I feel like watching when I don't want to turn my brain on. And I'm perfectly happy with how both algorithms are working for me, but I also don't necessarily know what I'm not seeing. So it's it's just a really hard question to optimize for. And I think that Ideally, I would rather, not I would rather, but I, I think that you'd have to kind of reshape society in order to get to a place where people might be a little bit happier with what YouTube is recommending to them, which also may or may not be in like the best financial interests of YouTube, which is a whole other thing. I think we, to a certain extent, may just perpetually be victims of the law of unintended consequences. Like you said there's there's going to be levers that need to be pulled. When you pull one of those levers, some things are going to happen. What are those things? And you do need humans out there listening to other humans and making decisions about what to do when the thing that you didn't expect starts to happen. I wish, I really wish that robots could help solve this. I really wish that there were systems that could get out in front of this. If the algorithm itself is built on machine learning, mm -hmm then to some extent, the solution has to be a little bit machine learning, right? You can't leave it unattended, but like that is part of the solution, right? Yeah. I mean, I think also in conversations that I've had with both YouTube boys on like the discovery team and then like the comment moderation team, a lot of unfortunately what they end up having to do is like respond instead of creating new systems that might make things better. So the example that always comes to mind is when my video and a couple other people's videos got featured on the homepage for Black History Month last year, year before, can't remember. They sent us a warning email basically saying, your videos are going to be shown to the general audience of YouTube. So your comments might be a disaster, just so you know, which they were. <laughs> they were a total nightmare. And a lot of the issues that popped up when it came to comment moderation were just that the way that people were commenting racial slurs on my video were ways that the comment moderation team had never seen before. And so they didn't have anything in that algorithm to catch it. So I, I think that that's also kind of a, a central challenge to this and that a lot of the work that goes into tweaking the algorithm is kind of always chasing a moving target. And so we may never actually end up with an algorithm that everyone opens YouTube and they're like, ah, yes, I'm completely satisfied with this because there'll always be some new thing that someone has done that was not in the data set. People will find constantly new ways to be shitty. Yes. Yeah. One of the things that comes up for us all the time, there's a, a Reddit thread about it yesterday. Why doesn't Nebula have comments? Oh, I did see that. <laughs> and I always try to answer as honestly and as completely as I can diplomatically. And I say, the reason is that that's so much harder than you think it is. Keeping things moderated is so much harder than you think. One of the things we hear all the time is, but this is a paid platform. So the barrier to entry is higher. Therefore, you'll only get nice people saying nice things. And I don't know, man. <laughs> Have you seen our fucking support inbox? That is not true. People can still be shitty. We get emails from from people complaining about creators and just kind of going off. I've had to go through every day we have to go in and moderate comments on the subreddit because we put a Reddit thread under every Nebula original and we have to moderate stuff there. 
I don't know how to solve for this, but people will still, it's not they're going in there and saying awful, awful things necessarily, but they will go in and get too familiar or they will argue past the point of reasonableness and kind of get into name calling territory with each other. Or my personal favorite, people who will go through bullet by bullet and tell you all of the things you were wrong about in your video. I realize I'm saying this in public now, but it's so hard to find the right way to, to tell everyone, hey, this isn't a platform where you get to be heard. Mm -hmm. This video here, this isn't YouTube. This is the creator's space. This is not where you get to have your voice heard. This is not the place where you get to write your name on the wall. Not because we don't like you, very much the opposite. It's that we want to make sure that the time and effort that we're putting into things is less about being a social media platform and more about building a place where the creators can create the things they want to create and find their own interactions with the audience. There's still like the fact that people leave comments on Reddit demanding the, a system for comments. It's like you're commenting now. What's wrong with this? Yeah, I would argue You're, that Reddit is our comments section, which I think is completely I fine. Agree. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let somebody else build it. We talked a bunch about ways we could build a comment system that would be good and, and potentially like non-toxic and not look too sparse and how we could build community. And everything we, we came up with just always came back to basically just making Reddit. Yeah, I think that sticking with Reddit makes the most sense. I also used to moderate a larger subreddit and... People really don't realize how much work goes into that. So when people ask for comments on Nebula, my knee jerk is always like, would you like to moderate them <laughs> for free? Because uh, you'll see why we don't have them. And I also, and actually, I don't know if this is something that has happened on other platforms. I'd be curious to see if it has. But I would be curious about almost, I, I mean, especially in the last week, the word parasocial has been thrown around a lot. Yeah. I would be curious about how having that extra level of access changes the nature of the comments and the sense of ownership over the creator or obligation to a creator's time that goes into that. Because I Ooh. know that when I had a Patreon, that was also an issue. People will come out of the woodwork to pay to be creeps or to pay to, you know, feel like they should have more access to you because of that. And that was one of the many reasons why I shut down my Patreon. If somebody could on Nebula pay extra to send you a message, would you see that as a good thing or a bad thing? Mm, my knee jerk is bad. I guess my actual knee jerk is my email is online. <laughs> like you right, don't have right. to pay money to do that. That's not, I guess I, I would they be guaranteed a reply oh no no that would be a i would never do that to you <laughs> no, no, that oh, sounds then awful. i definitely say I, I would lean towards bad thing because it would just create like if you can send me an email or you can like at me on twitter or dm me on instagram or i guess message me on tiktok i don't actually know i don't really go on tiktok but if you can do all of those things and now you have the option to pay for my attention you're inherently gonna feel like you should get a reply and if you don't which you like probably wouldn't, then that just creates more of an issue. Interesting. When you think of ways for creators to, I don't know, monetize, and I'm I'm not a huge fan of everything being the funnel, but you gotta eat, right? And we sell sponsorships. We we built a paywalled platform. We have online classes. There's various things we do that are all designed to make creators money. When you think of ways for the audience to pay in, the, the things we do, uh, classes and the Nebula subscription itself, there's also Patreon. There's also uh, coffee, K-O-F-I, the Patreon style version of OnlyFans, asterisk without the extra connotations. They're actually actively going after, or they were a little bit ago, uh, YouTubers trying to break free of the just the sexualized content stigma. But when you think of these platforms, ways for the audience to contribute directly, like what is the most ethical thing to do? Ideally, some level of just expectation setting, I feel like is the main thing. But also there's always going to be people who like feel like they're entitled to more of you because they are a YouTube member or a patron or they gave you five bucks on Kofi or whatever. And this might be a hot take. I don't necessarily know that it's on the platform to do anything different than what they currently do to make it a more ethical system. 
because like if people are going to be shitty, they're going to be shitty. And if the goal is to have a tip jar system for creators in order for them to make money, I don't know that there's a way to do that better that will keep out like the creeps and the weirdos or give people a better expectation of what they should expect for their money. Maybe with artificial intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) Just machine learning. That's the solution to every problem. I guess the, the thing I'm thinking about is to some extent, anything I say here, I'm telegraphing a little bit what our, our thoughts are, not necessarily what the next thing we're working on is. But we we do want to evaluate a lot of our creators use Patreon. And if a lot of our creators use Patreon, what is interesting about that? What is good about that? If we already have credit card relationships with a lot of the creators audience and we're already doing credit card processing, would it make sense for us to offer a similar service where we don't have to take a cut? We're already making money. We can act as a pass-through thing and not need to take more of the money could go to the creator. Is that a service we should provide? And if we do, how should that work? And if it's good for one creator, is it good for all creators? Or are we walking down a path that is going to have a series of unintended consequences for different types of creators. What might work for a straight white guy YouTuber and his interactions with his audience, getting these kinds of messages or or getting tip jar or Patreon style contributions might be very different from the way a marginalized creator has experience with that. I want to put in the work to understand what those differences are because everything, right? The law of unintended consequences. There's going to be levers that we pull just like the algorithm levers and just like the the comment system levers, there's going to be levers that we pull and we don't have a gazillion dollars. We're not YouTube. We're not Google. We're not Facebook. We, we don't even have the theoretical ability to be so nimble that we can account for any changes. So I want to make sure that we understand those rabbit holes, at least as best we can going into it. The kinds of creators who would have a Patreon or the kinds of creators who would who would do any sort of taking money from their audience. Is there a set of considerations or ethical implications? In your case, you said you had Patreon, you turned it off. Was that an ethical question for you or was it purely because the interactions were weird? It was because I had some weird interactions. It was also because at the time I felt that I was overextending myself, which was fully my fault in the sense that I was pretty new to monetizing content. And so I guess the interesting things of being on this whole like YouTube journey is getting a sense of how much people pay you to do things. And so at the time, the concept that someone would pay me, you know, $3 a month and I didn't have to give them anything, like I couldn't reconcile that in my brain. So the Patreon perks or whatever they're called, I was giving were just more than I could realistically handle. And then if I couldn't meet that internal standard, then I like felt awful about taking people's money, which like I was not making any real money from my Patreon anyway. And it just became this point of stress between that and then fielding messages from most of my patrons were like totally chill and were just like, yeah, we just wanted to support you. We don't actually need anything back. But I think between that and the people who were being weirdos, it became clear after a certain point that it was just more stress for me than it was actually worth. And that I think at the time I'd also, I was either starting to talk to you or was like forming the LLC so that I could sign the paperwork. So I knew that I would have other ways of making money at that point. That would be a lower lift. There's whole conversation right now about how it's meta and they've got this like AI generation tool is it meta? Uh, yes. that is remarkably good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and remarkably good. And not, I guess, a huge surprise because Dolly and similar things are, are out there and are also weirdly good. Uh, maybe maybe it's evolving faster than I thought it would. But these things are out there now. And there's this big conversation around like, what is okay to use? And I know that we got uh, some complaints on Twitter because Epos Vox has a, a channel now where he kind of goes into these tools and plays with them. And people were complaining that some of the tools are doing unethical things using unlicensed art to train the AI. I do not want to even pretend to understand what the legal or ethical implications are just yet. But there is going to come a point if you can have a machine learning generate a script for a video. And if you could have machine learning, you feed it enough samples of your voice 
deep fake your voice. You could deep fake your face. And you, if you can do machine learning video and you can pull in stock footage from Getty or AP or whatever, how far out are we from you could just like type in a few notes and the computer spits out a video with your voice and face? Well, wasn't there the whole thread that Hank Green put up like this week or last week that was highlighting? I can't remember who the creators were. I think it was Nile Red and probably Tom Scott. Uh, it was Nile Red and Mark Rober. Yeah, I don't know if you watched the video, but it was pretty funny. When it's in the context of this is just somebody having fun, like taking the piss out of some famous YouTubers, how different is it from like when we deep fake, I don't know, Tom Cruise, nobody gets upset about it. You deep fake Mark Rober and suddenly people are really upset, even when it's still in the context of what I think was was very much a joke. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm saying that it's interesting that people are not upset at all when it's a mainstream celebrity, but get very upset when it's like a YouTube celebrity. And there's like some kind of I, I, maybe parasocial thing, or maybe it's that people I see getting upset about this are creators and they see people who look and sound like them and who have similar jobs being deep faked and suddenly it's m much more real. But like, is that is that a real problem? I don't is know the extent now? of the problem. I do feel like at least within my Twitter feed, a lot of the people who were reacting negatively to it were creators. So I'd be curious mm -hmm. about how like people who don't make content feel about it. I brought it up more so as an example of like, we can, like if I wanted to never be on camera again and never record another video, but still make videos, I could do that with AI. You'd still probably have a bit of the uncanny valley factor just because you do still need some amount of compute in order to make these things look like halfway decent. And if you're looking at like a really high quality deep fake, they tend to be somewhat expensive, but they're getting mm -hmm. cheaper and access to compute is also getting somewhat cheaper. And so I'll be curious to see over the next year how trends like VTubers kind of expand into potential trends like deep faking all of your videos and never actually filming anything ever again. You are your own VTuber sort of a thing? Basically. I guess, yeah. I mean, VTuber isn't a genre that I interact with much, but I'm hearing about it more. And maybe maybe that's a thing. I don't know. Do we worry about it? Is it is it a problem? I don't know yet. I think when it comes to people wanting to deep fake themselves, you know, you're kind of a consenting party in that. And I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. I think it gets a lot more nebulous when we get into even when it comes to parody videos, like I made the making a deepfake Tom Scott video for less than a hundred bucks, but I also had his explicit permission to do it. And I, I wouldn't have been comfortable making a video like that if I didn't, because I just think that that's, I don't know, reusing someone's likeness in that way, I think is, is I wouldn't be comfortable with that. Um, I would be pretty weirded out by that because you can misrepresent people in all kinds of fun ways. Is it fundamentally different from somebody who does a really great Donald Trump impression going on Saturday Night Live and pretending to be Donald Trump for a sketch? I think context matters a lot. So if you're on SNL, chances are people know that that's not Donald Trump. If you make a deep fake of Donald Trump saying things that he did not say, people may or may not know that that's not Donald Trump. That'd be hard to do. He'll say just about anything. Yeah, I did a video a while back, actually, on a paper that looked into that and they had an interesting time creating fake Donald Trump videos <laughs> that were like, how do we create fake Donald Trump videos that people wouldn't believe is a thing that he said? <laughs> <laughs> like in the discussion, one of their comments is like, well, we tried. I don't know how much we succeeded, but. Because he already looks and sounds deep faked. Mm -hmm. The magic of you know, the, <laughs> the magic of Saturday Night Live, if anybody would agree with that, or parody in general, these kinds of shows, Comedy, I get, I think gets a pass because it's clearly parody. And when it's parody, you have the audience's consent. Yeah. The Mark Rober, Nile Red thing, in my mind at least, the question is not whether or not it was okay to deep fake a joke video with Mark and Nigel. I think it was more, in, again, in, from my perspective, uh, more a question of how much disclosure do you need to do to the audience that this is fake? To me, it was very obviously fake, very obviously a joke. I thought it was funny. Again, not saying it's right, just saying that I can see how you don't have to be acting in bad faith to get there. You don't even have to be dumb to get there. I think that it, it could truly just be a difference in opinion on where the line is. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think 
a lot of the people doing this stuff are not acting in bad faith. I think that we're in this fun gray zone limbo, both in terms of individual expectations, but also like the legal system's perspective on this. And this has always been a a policy issue on the policy side where like the technology advances before the laws catch up and the technology advances currently before kind of people's norms around it have caught up. I think it'll be an interesting time to create that status quo on a level with videos like the the Nile Red and the Mark Rober one. We can get a sense of was that an appropriate amount of disclosure for a video or should people be disclosing more? And that I think is going to ultimately, when it comes to platforms like YouTube, kind of come down to audience and how they feel about it. And I don't know that that's the ethically best way of doing it, but it's probably what's going to happen. Yeah, I don't think Hank was wrong. I don't think his feelings are wrong. I don't think his opinion Mm -hmm. is wrong. I don't need to agree with all of it. He's in a much different position than I am. He's much more public than I am. And there's a lot more video of him out there (laughs) with which you could train an artificial intelligence to suddenly have a a Hank Green saying dumb shit channel. And I, I get that that's a real concern. As somebody who spends more time watching this stuff than making this stuff, at least in the same classical sense, I guess I don't worry about it in the same way. But at the same time, like I, I represent creators and a lot of you folks are on camera. And what do I need to be thinking about to make sure that that isn't being abused, to make sure that hell, even stuff that we do on Nebula isn't just going to end up feeding some machine learning deepfake algorithm where people could go out and build their own parody Nebula, where it's a bunch of videos from the same creators, ostensibly, but saying a bunch of like uh, alt-right uh, pro-Trump propaganda or something. I think it's called Daily Wire Plus. I don't, I don't know that that's something that you're going to be able to defend against. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess I just want to be thinking about it. I definitely get that. Uh, I just think that on a certain level, it's like we make content that we put on the internet and people can download it. And there aren't really great ways of not letting people do that unless you're Netflix. And if you turn on a screen recorder, it automatically blocks out all the video, but also there are ways of getting around that. So yeah, I hate to call it an occupational hazard, but I do kind of feel like it is one. At a certain point, the internet as a public thing, it's sort of like actually being in public. At least in the US, you walk outside your front door, you walk out in public, somebody takes your photograph, you can't stop them. You're in public. It is reasonable and legal to expect that If you're in public, you can be photographed. If you're on the internet, is it reasonable to expect that you can be photographed? And are there extra protections afforded to people who are famous that break down that, I don't know, freedom to photograph for those sorts of, I'm I'm getting messy with the thought here, but like, is there something special about a famous person that they shouldn't be harassed by paparazzi? Yeah, harassment bad, photographed. I don't know. You can see how it can be abused in these situations, but do you change the law for that? How do you change the law for that? And then we take that that same thinking, we apply it to the internet. What can you even do? I, I mean, I almost think the, the incentive structures are also different between those two things, though. Paparazzi, like if I wear the same, if I'm Tom Scott and I wear the same shirt <laughs> in all of my videos, then that doesn't make people less interested in downloading copies of all my videos and like making deep fakes or misrepresenting me or something. If I'm, I don't know who's famous these days. I don't follow tabloids. Everything right now is about Harry Styles and Olivia Wilde and that stupid movie that I see ads for everywhere. (laughs) But if I'm like Harry Styles walking down the street, if I wear the same t-shirt leaving my house every day for a week, then like paparazzi don't want to take my photo because it's the same photo over and over and over again. So I do think that the the incentive structures are a little bit different between the two. To sort of put a bow on, on all of this, so much of technology advancements are driven by shopping porn and Star Wars. And as technology evolves to the point where we can start shopping for Star Wars porn, are there new rules around what we're allowed to create? I can only imagine that. Star Wars porn is something that you can already shop for, first of all. Uh, well. <laughs> that feels like it exists on the internet somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure that's out there. I think it's just much higher quality thanks to technology now. There are even deep fakes in Star Wars. 
Oh, yeah. As this stuff gets better, and as we have the YouTube channels that can do a deep fake parody of Mark Rober and Niall Red. Do we have different rules? And not saying should those people do that, but like us, do, are there now rules for us about the things we can or should make? Should we be thinking differently about how we use those tools? I compare it to autotune. Is autotune evil? No. It's a way to uh, make a, a great performance also be in tune. You can use it to make somebody who can't sing sound as if they can sing, kind of. You can use it artistically, like what Post Malone does or what uh, T-Pain did, I guess, originally, or I share the first big use of that. There are things you can use this technology for that are good, and there are things you can use this technology for that are bad artistically. Is there, or should there be any sort of, I don't want to say laws, but like, what is the acceptable use of this? I mean, I think when it comes to using these systems for replicating your own likeness, similar to autotune, I don't really have a problem with that. I don't know that I think that there should be rules around how you can use it for others. Or I guess I think that there should be, but I don't know what the rules would be because so many of these things are just situational things where it depends a lot on the circumstances. So I would hope that any either formalized or kind of community agreed on rules just respected other people's privacy and rights to their likeness and things like that. But I think that a lot of that's just going to be the community deciding what it is comfortable with and what it's not. If you could replace yourself with a deep fake, set up a series of machine learning robots that generated scripts, you just type in a prompt once a week and it spits out a video that you get to upload and you can monetize that video, would you do it? Not for every video. <laughs> Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Jordan Hare. Jordan, where could people find you on the internet? On the internet, if you Google Jordan Harrod, I am on all of my socials as at Jordan Harrod or at Jordan B. Harrod. Well, there you go, audience. You can Google Jordan on the internet. Jordan, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. This is a great conversation. Always yeah, a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I feel much smarter now. 